Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Letters from a Serial Killer. That's today's subject in the House of Mystery. Joining us is Christy Bellacamino, crime fiction writer and a cop beat reporter, best known for her Gabriella Giovanni mystery series. In the first book in the series, Blessed or the Dead, based on her dealings with a serial killer, was nominated for a 2015 Anthony and McCavity Award for Best First Novel. And now her latest novella, Letters from a Serial Killer, actually goes into detail about the jailhouse conversations and the letters she received from behind bars from a serial killer abductor. Now, Ziana Fairchild was snatched off the streets in Vallejo, California on her way to the school bus stop, and she was never seen again. That led the newspaper reporter that was covering the story, who's our guest, Christy Bellacamino, and the mother who raised her to face the accused in prison, Curtis Anderson, to find out exactly what happened to Ziana and where she could be. And now we welcome to the show Christy Bellacamino. Thanks for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me, Al. Where did you get the interest in writing about a true crime? Well, so I was a newspaper reporter in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was a story that came across my beat. A little girl named Ziana Fairchild who disappeared on her way to the school bus stop. And it quickly became clear that it was a kidnapping. And for a long time, we didn't know 
what had happened, it, it became clear it was a, a stranger abduction. And nobody had, there were no suspects basically. Nobody had any idea what had happened to this little girl. And about six months after her disappearance, another little girl who basically fit her general description um, and lived within, I think, a mile of her house in Vallejo, California, was also kidnapped on the way home from school. But this little girl managed to escape. The man who kept her for three days in his car, and she was able to unlock the chains that were keeping her bound to the steering column and started to run away while he was in his old work picking up something. He noticed that she was getting away, and he started to chase her across the parking lot. She was able to flag down a truck driver, basically said, I'm the little girl who was kidnapped from Vallejo. They were, the truck driver was able to get the man's license plate number before he drove away, and he was arrested within a few hours. So as soon as that arrest was made public, the immediate suspicion was that this man might have been connected to also kidnapping Deanna Fairchild. The similarities were just too strong. So I and other people requested interviews with him in jail because at the time, I don't know I'm, if they still do this in California in the newspaper world, but we, we could send a request, and if an inmate wanted to talk to you, then you could go in and talk to him. So I immediately asked him if he had taken Zeana Fairchild, and he started kind of leading me on. Like, I can't tell you that, but I'll tell you something one day. Um, meanwhile, during the whole entire disappearance of Diana, I had become friends with the woman who had raised her, Stephanie Kalakulu. And it, shortly after this man's kidnapping, she also went into the jail and started questioning him. Do you have Diana? Did you take Diana? Do you know what happened to her? And he would give us little tidbits of information. And it quickly became clear that he had been kidnapping and killing people for a long time. And he'd give us little bits of information and say, I will eventually tell you what happened to Diana. That's what he was telling me. Meanwhile, he was telling the mother, Stephanie, I have her. She, someone has her. I took her. She's still alive. Give me money, and I'll make sure nothing happens to her, and I'll eventually tell you where she is. And Stephanie didn't know whether to believe him or not. I didn't know whether to believe him or not. And at some point, during this, I think it was two months after we started talking to him, they found Deanna's remains. So all bets were off. He couldn't play his little game with Stephanie that Deanna was still alive. But at that point, my goal and Stephanie's goal was to get him to tell us enough so he would also be convicted of that crime and that we would know exactly what happened to her and where, where the rest of her was because it was only her partial remains. So all that happened. And... Somewhere along the line, other stories happened, like 9-11 and some other big stories in the newspaper, and he sort of faded out of my world, at least, out of my reporting job as a, as a newspaper reporter. And then I got pregnant and had a kid and decided to move to Minnesota, where my husband's family is, and I quit my reporting job. And I had two little girls, and I realized that as I was a mother, and I was an extremely paranoid mother of two little girls because I knew that people who kidnapped and killed little girls existed and I had letters that I carried across the country from him. I had notes and 
notebooks of conversations with him. And so I realized I was being extremely paranoid. I would call their names if they were in our fence backyard to make sure they were okay. And and I, I wasn't being a very good mother. I was so worried about them all the time. And so my form of therapy was to sit down and write a book about it. And I wrote a fiction book about a newspaper reporter who was dealing with a serial killer trying to find out what happened to a missing little girl. And by writing that book, Blessed of the Dead, I was able to get this guy out of my head for the most part. I was able to let go of all that extreme paranoia and fear and sort of put it on paper and, and let it go. And luckily enough, I was able to sell the book. HarperCollins bought it. And I realized I loved the world so much that I wrote several other books. So HarperCollins published four books in that series. The last book came out in September. And there'll be another one um, in the future. But meanwhile, Stephanie and I had kept in touch over the years, and we talked about how this guy had affected our parenting and how we were pretty messed up from it and from dealing with him. And we talked about sharing our letters. We talked about maybe doing a blog post on my website, or we weren't really sure what to do with it. And we kind of put it off for years. I think it was really hard for Stephanie to, to go back and deal with that. Um, but this winter... I said, hey, Stephanie, I'm thinking about writing a book. Do you want to write it with me? And she said, yeah, I think I need to. I think it's good therapy and healing for me. So we sat down and we, over, over mail, of course, she's in California still, and I'm in Minnesota, we co-wrote Letters from the Serial Killer. And it's pretty much the first time we have shared our stories, um, our dealings with this guy, our conversations on the phone, in person, and our letters. And that's a very long-winded introduction <laughs> well that's yeah, it, co- it, it covered it yeah it's good well, okay good okay. I, no that's interesting i think that um just going uh in and um seeing him um you probably didn't realize that it was going to be such uh, uh, a changing event in your life i had no idea no idea how it would affect me you know 15 years later and and now I've I've also noticed like so on your and all even your fiction books, um, you kind of take them and center them around something that is true to life, um, like this event. So blessed was sort of a story centered around the missing girl here. Right, right. It was it was inspired by that. Yes, it was a way to basically make him die a really bad death <laughs> in fiction. And, and that's what's fun about writing fiction is in, in the real world, sometimes justice is not served. And in fiction, you can, you can make justice served. You can get justice and revenge and all these other things. So that's, that's the fun about writing fiction. Yeah, you can have the happy ending. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and now, so when you actually uh, went in to meet him for the first time, what were you thinking, as in, um, uh, what what did you think you'd deal with? Like, uh, did you really think he was the guy, or? I sort of did think he was the guy. I thought it, it was just too coincidental for their, well, here, for, let me back up. Stranger abductions are extremely rare, even though they seem so prevalent in the media because it, we do make a big deal of them. It's very important to get the word out when there's a missing child, especially a stranger abduction. But in reality, they're very, very rare. And so the odds of a stranger 
taking two different girls within six months within a mile of one another with similar ages and physical descriptions, it just, I, I, I couldn't imagine that there were two different people doing it. So, yeah, I did think he was probably the one from the get-go, and I didn't know what to think. I'm sure I was nervous. Um, I had interviewed uh, murderers before um, because, for some reason, they a lot of them like to talk to reporters. I'm not quite sure why, but I don't argue with them. Uh, so, and, I, and I'd actually been threatened by a guy who was accused of kidnapping and killing little girls before, so I, I don't know. I wasn't super concerned. Um, I was more interested in getting him to talk. And and so how was that? Like, what was he um, pretty easy to talk to? Was he willing to kind of give you um, a, a lot of information? Or he he was very willing to talk. He was very ego, or was very egocentrical. He was a megalomaniac. He thought he was really cool and really smart, so he loved to talk. However, he was would do a really good job of avoiding giving you a straight answer. I would say, okay, did you kill her? I can't, did you take her? I can't answer that. Okay, then tell me you didn't take her. And he would, well, I don't want the DA to come give me more charges. And I'd say, okay, well, you tell me you didn't lie. So if you don't lie, but you won't tell me you didn't take her, then I'm assuming you did. And he'd say something like, well, your intuition is good. So he, he was always playing a little cat and mouse game and never quite, I could never nail him down to give me a straight answer. And I'd say, well, I don't believe you. You know, I don't think you're telling the truth. And then he would make up some, some story. So I, I found it extremely frustrating um, that I could never get a straight answer. And the few times he gave me really... Uh, I guess true information, he would write it, he would take out a little piece of paper and a little pencil he had hidden, because I don't think he was supposed to have any of that, and he would write it on a piece of paper, and then he'd hold it up to the glass for me to read, and then he'd wad, I thought he wadded it up, Stephanie said when he did that for her, he'd wad it up and eat it, and swallow it, and he probably, I just, maybe I'd block that part out, he was just, yeah. But I, I, he, I remember he would wad it up and then do something with it. But he would communicate with us that way because he knew that it was our interviews were recorded. There was a camera in the room recording what we what we said and did. And so the first time he told me he actually killed people, I was I, I was trying I was goading him on. I said, I said, you know, I know that you want to tell somebody something. I said, I know you want to just talk about it. Why don't you talk to me? Yeah, you know, I'm not a police officer. I'm not the district attorney. Just tell me about it. Why not just tell me? You, you know you want to get it off your chest. And his answer was, well, I've been keeping in stuff worse than that for more than 20 years. And I said, well, what do you mean? What could be worse than that? What could be worse than kidnapping a little girl? And that's when he got out his little piece of paper, and he wrote, oh, I didn't, he, he wrote something, and he held it up to the window, and it said, first kidnap." 19, I think it was 1981. First kidnap, 1981. Rape, kill. And then he wadded it back up. And I just, I mean, my blood went cold. That was the first time he, like, really told me he'd been killing, raping and killing people for 20 years. 
And then, so I'd ask him, well, remember what we talked about when you held up that piece of paper? Where are these people? And then he'd have me bring maps in, and he'd point on the maps. And I, 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 there was never anything ever found. I know the FBI, they have a website up right now talking about his victims and still trying to find information on it. But he, he never gave me specifics about his victims. He would say that most of them were people who wouldn't be missed, like some of his early victims were runaways that people would never know if they were missing. Um, so, you know, when you were doing this um, and the mother, Stephanie, was doing it, did you guys know you were each seeing him and were you communicating at that time? Well, no. We I knew she was visiting him and she knew I was visiting him. But a lot of our, we hadn't really shared a lot of our conversation for some reason. I'm not, I, I think we had to a certain extent. But the first time he told me he'd been killing people, I got in my car after the interview and instead of calling, I was on my way back to the newspaper to write a story about it. This was at night. And instead of calling my editor, which is usually your first call, <laughs> or calling my husband and telling, you know, freaking out, I called Stephanie. And I said, Stephanie, he told me he's been doing this and he's been killing people. And I, you know, kind of spilled everything to her. And she said, yes, I know. He told me two months ago that he confessed he took Diana and that she's live and that and that's when she started telling me what he'd been telling her. He told her not to tell anyone because of course she I'm probably the last person Stephanie would necessarily want to tell because I probably would put it in the paper unless she told me not to and then of course I wouldn't. But you know, he, she didn't want it in the paper because then she would be disobeying him and he was really into her obeying what he did because he threatened to hurt Diana if she didn't do what he said. So she, she told me that, and I said, well, is it okay if I, you know, put this in the paper? And she said yes. And so then, you know, the story was, you know, basically he told Diana's mother, the woman who raised her, that he that he took her, and he's been trying to get money out of her for the last two months. And so from that point on, we, we basically shared all information about it. But um, I, she kept it secret, and she had to for two months that he had, had told her early on that he took Diana. I was just wondering because then, so he was treating both of you quite a bit different. Like he had, Very different. yeah. So he had a different angle on her than he did on you. Yes, he was. He was very careful with me. He was more, and this is disgusting, but he would flirt, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. and sort of try to be all gee golly shucks with me, and sort of smile and try to be winning I guess or charming and with her he was mean he was just flat out mean and crude and rude and I think the difference was is he knew that if he did that with me it was my job and I could just walk away or send another reporter and he knew with Stephanie that it was her kid and that she unfortunately unfortunately, had to keep coming back and listening to that. And she was very, very strong. She called him out on it all the time. You know, she'd tell him, quit, you know, talking to me this way, quit doing this. But he he was terrible to her. I mean, the things that she shared in her letters and their conversations um, are awful. Like, he, it was, I just, I don't, she is such a strong woman to just keep going back to find out what happened to her daughter. And and 
and being strong against such a terrible person. And how were the police um, about you and her both going in and visiting him? You know, it's really funny because uh, the police never said anything to me about it ever. They never said word one. They never said anything. However, I was always very aware that there was, and I just, you know, had it confirmed just recently when Stephanie and I were talking about it, that FBI and police were listening into almost every single conversation. I don't know if they did every single reporter that visited him, but I know they read every letter that was exchanged between us. And at one point, they actually kept one of our le- one of the letters he sent me. I never did receive that, and he was really upset about it. And Stephanie, she at once she found out that yes, they, the the FBI and police every time she went to visit him, they were in a surveillance room listening in. But and so they they would talk to her about it. They never coached her. She said, you know, she they never told her what to say. They actually were worried about her at first when she said she was going to go visit them. They said they were worried she couldn't handle it and that it would be too upsetting. And she said, I have to do this. I have to go talk to him. And then once she decided, then I believe she said that she would call them afterwards and fill them in on what, what conversation took place. So, But they never coached her. They never said, don't say this, don't say that. But one thing that they did tell her, which was extremely creepy, is he would tell her what to wear. I, I have one of the letters that he sent her, and it would say, you know, on your next visit, I want you to wear your hair up. And I want you to wear that white sweater. And after that letter, the police officers called her in and said, you know, we're a little concerned because based on what we know about this guy, you fit his victim profile to a key. She's petite. She's Hawaiian. You know, she has nice, beautiful olive skin and dark eyes and long black hair and, you know, petite little thing, like just kind of like his, you know, the two girls he, he kidnapped, you know, that's Diana and then this other little girl. And so they were really concerned about her that she fit his victim profile, which is extremely creepy. That's got to be pretty devastating in a way. Um, when he starts telling um, how how to dress, you know, how to keep your hair and stuff like that, with um, that, that's kind of weird in a way. Um, what do you think his kind end- of? Well, I'm trying to be. Uh, what do you think yeah, the I end know. game was? Like what, what was? I- th- think he, he was trying to manipulate her as much as he possibly could, and it was fun for him. He, every single letter he wrote her, every conversation they had, he had a list of questions. Questions like, um, where were you born? Uh, when did you lose your virginity? How long did it take you to grow your hair that long? He he constantly was trying to get information about her. Um, I don't recall him doing that with me, and I would not have offered it because I was in a different position than than she was. Um, And she avoided most of those questions. And when she did, he would get angry and say, you didn't answer my questions. You know who's going to be punished now. So, so at that time, this is before um, they had found any remains, and right. um, they figured she was still kid- kidnapped somewhere or alive. Um, uh, and how did that change, actually, once they found the remains? Um, did he sort of change his attitude toward what he was giving you for information? 
Yeah, I think I think after they found her remains is when he started talking a lot more to me. Um, Stephanie, at that point, all the gloves came off for her. Once she knew that he was not keeping Gianna alive and he could not punish her, she was she was done. You know, there was no there was no playing around. She got she was already tough. She got really tough then, and I think. In both cases, he got angry at us because we were we were just like, okay, you, whatever. We we don't have to be nice to you anymore because there's there's we want you convicted, but there's nothing you can do to hurt that little girl anymore. So we're just gonna do whatever. I remember I wrote a, a profile piece on him. Where I interviewed a bunch of FBI profiler and a criminologist who studied serial killers, and I had them all analyze him. And and they ripped into him. The article was basically that he was wasn't nearly as smart as he thought he was, and he was playing these games. And if we didn't pay attention to him, he'd fade away. And that he thought um, that they called him the poster boy of evil. And it was it was a really harsh article about how he wasn't as smart as he thought he was, and that maybe he was he was a terrible person. But he was not a Ted Bundy like he was trying to associate himself with. And so... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, I was waiting to see what his response to that article would be, and he immediately wrote back and 
was berating me for the article, of course, um, and making fun. Oh, great expert, Christy. Yeah, oh, he's real smart. I I don't have an ego. I, you know, I kept this in. Why did it take the police 20 years to arrest me for my first sex crime? And I've been doing it for this long. And, and if I want, if I had such a big ego, then why have I kept it in for, you know, this many years? And so he was really defensive and it really got the reaction out of him that, that I guess we kind of wanted, but he still didn't give us any information. Um, and at the same time, he was sort of praising the article. Oh, that's, and then he'd say, oh, that's a really good line, Christy, you know, about my article. So I just, <laughs> I just never, yeah, I don't know. He, uh, he definitely changed his tenor, though. It was, like I said, it was gloved off, especially for Stephanie. And he, I think he found he needed to work harder to keep our attention at that point. And that's really what he wanted was attention. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to feel important, you know. Um, he wanted to feel important, yep. Yeah. I, I, what did you learn about him, actually, in your, like, what kind of details? Like, what was he, uh, why was he selecting certain children? Like, was it just random? Did you learn any of that? A little bit. He uh, he told me, as far as, like, his victim profile, he, I don't necessarily know what his first, victims look like but he did make a comment that lately my victims are more petite and ethnic or so I don't know how he phrased it he he said something like they're I'm, I'm more into petite and, and um and ethnic looking girls and women now so I don't know about that as far as what I learned about him I think the hardest well one of the hardest things for me is I could never, ever pinpoint why he was the way he was. And I was, obviously, I'm not the only one in the world. I mean, they do autopsies on serial killers to look for their differences in their brain, you know, that, that may have caused this. But I could never point to anything and say, oh, my gosh, you had this really freaky childhood or these screwed-up parents or, you know, none of that. Like, everything I tried, I tried to pinpoint something, and I was like, no, no, that, 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 I don't think that makes someone a serial killer. I don't, and so that was, the more I found out about his life, the more baffled I was by why he was the way he was. Yeah, he wasn't out killing puppies and things like that, eh? So, uh, uh, he or, might have done some, like, one or two weird things like that as a kid, but not enough to not you know not the whole damn it like lighting fires and killing the cat and doing all that no yeah. it wasn't like that well and was so he fun. was he married at the time and did he have kids of his own and a job and all that well he i never ever said this to me and i didn't find out until he was dead but he had a he had a, a kid i think um and i don't know anything about that that person and I don't know if he was involved at all. He had talked about ex-girlfriends and how they wanted to get married and have kids, and he wasn't ready. But I never, I never knew that he had um, a child, and I don't believe he was ever married because I have anything of a paper trail regarding him. I have, like, I have his original or original copy of his birth certificate, like in my papers. I mean, we when we were writing about him, we like I have a gigantic box information on him and so I think if there was ever any legal document of a marriage that I would have come across it in my research 
I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it'd be unlikely. Yeah. How, how old was he when they when they actually um, arrested him? I think he was 39, 37 or 39. Okay. So, he, you know, he was an adult. It's he been a while. Yeah, no. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah like he wasn't like some 19-year-old. This guy was had been around. No. Yeah. No. No. And so he functioned in a job, too, and, and co-workers never knew? Well, where they found Deanna's remains, he had told me after I went to visit him after that, he said, oh, yeah, I used to have a an airport luggage delivery route that took me up there all the time into those Santa Cruz mountains. And, and so I know he worked as a delivery driver for the airport luggage. And then when he took Deanna, uh, Stephanie just told me this. I, I, I was a little unclear on it, but he had worked as a cab driver. And... The cab company was really close about giving us details about when he quit. But uh, Stephanie told me that what she heard was that he quit at 3 a.m. from this cab company and Ziana was taken at 7.30 a.m. And it was in, you know, he was working, the cab stand was pretty close to the bus stop where she, uh, where she caught the bus in the morning. So he, he, I think he only had the job for a little while. Oh, the other reason I was going to say is he, he was in prison off and on for most of his life. So there wasn't a real strong job history there. Right, right. And, yeah, I could see that. Plus, being a cab driver, I'm sure that people wouldn't necessarily notice, you know, things you were doing because you're not, like, in an office or something um, mm -hmm. side yep. by side. Yep. And, and there was also a little controversy, wasn't there, like about the um, – you know, she was uh, picked up from uh, a bus stop, you know, going to school, and about her um, birth mother's boyfriend um, giving different stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, the birth mother's boyfriend had a conviction for child abuse, I believe. And so he said that he, when she went missing, he said, yeah, I, it was raining, so I drove her to the bus stop that morning so she didn't have to walk in the rain. And then it ended up that he, I think he held the press conference. The reason I say I think is, you know, this was a long time ago, and, and I don't have, you know, necessarily every single moment ingrained in my mind. I think I've blocked out a lot of it. But he, he either held a press conference or the police held a press conference where he announced, you know, I lied. I lied. I didn't drive her to the bus stop. I was so worried about this um, conviction I had that I thought I'd immediately be a suspect. And so I was—he's he was trying to make himself look good, I believe. Um, yeah, and yeah. I yeah. don't. Yeah, anyway, I mean, it must have made it worse. It, it made it worse because I don't think that when you're doing an investigation you don't want to go off on a different tangent. You need to know exactly what, you know, for the police, obviously investigators, they needed to know exactly where to start looking. And in this case, it would have been walking out her front door. You know, if they're going to retrace her path, it would have been walking out of that apartment door and not instead of starting at the bus stop. You know, there's a lot in between that bus stop and her apartment door. So. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so how do you find that this has changed you now, that you've um, been able to write about it and write about the uh, your interaction with him. 
as, as far as this most recent book, The Letters from the Serial Killer? Uh, yeah, like I, I'd imagine uh, um, writing both books has kind of um, let a lot of it out. Um, yeah. Are you a little bit more relaxed now? I am. I, I, I think it was good to go revisit what I was going through at, at that time. Um, because even though when I wrote Blessed of the Dead, I was also writing it loosely based on it. You know, my character is not me, and she lives a different life than I did, and the story played out differently. But in this book, you know, I go back and, and talk about what it was like to, to cover that story, and I hadn't really revisited it in that depth, and neither did Stephanie. This was the first time, you know, she looked at some of these letters or that I drug up some of these letters and, and went over it. And so it was, it's always good to, to get that stuff out of your head on paper. I mean, I, writing has been my therapy my entire life. So um, I think it's really good. I, I'm honored that Stephanie trusted me and that our friendship was strong enough to do this. Um, she told me, you know, she's been approached over the years numerous times by people wanting to write books with her or write articles, and, and she just always said no, and she said, I, I feel like I can do this with you, Christy. So I'm extremely honored that she opened up like that and did it, and I, I told her, I said, you know, you can be as little involved as in zero involved or as much involved in this book and she went all in i mean we are co-authors it's me and her um together and we've gone over every single word together and i think she's extremely strong and brave to do that how do you think she's dealing with it now ah you know i don't i i think that as far as dealing with writing the book or dealing with what happened? Yeah, just everything, right? You know, because it's, it's, it's a little bit of time now, and she's written the, written the book with you. Um, do you think she's um, somewhat resolved? No, I don't think it will ever be resolved. But what I do think is I think it was very empowering for her to write the book. It was, it, you know, she, for so much of this, was a helpless victim as, as strong and brave as she was and as much as she did to, I mean, put her heart and soul into finding that little girl and into seeking justice, so much of it was out of her control, no matter how strong and brave she was. And so in this respect, writing this book was em empowering. She was able to, to talk about it and say, this is what I did, this is what I lived, this is my experience. And I think that's that's great for her. I, I'm like I said, I'm just really honored that she that she did this with me. And I think that you know, while the book is is heart wrenching, it's it's also really really true and really really honest. And it just um, we really put ourselves out there in this book. Yeah, it's, I think it's uh, great. Um, I just can't help but thinking of the Silence of the Lambs, the movie. <laughs> um. Uh, going yeah. in, and, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> when you go in and talk to a, a, a serial killer like that, um, I, I, and so he ended up getting convicted, of course. He he was convicted 
of the first kidnapping, or the, the second one where the girl escaped, and he was sentenced to 251 years in prison. And then um, shortly before he died, he pleaded guilty to kidnapping and killing Deanna uh, as well. Um, I don't, I think, I'm not sure exactly how that took place, except I don't know if he called the FBI in or the FBI was already dealing with dealing with him and trying to find out more about his victims. But he went to court and, and pleaded guilty to that one. Um, and then not too long after that, actually on the, I think it was the nine-year anniversary of Donna's kidnapping, he had some type of a medical incident. So that day, nine years to the day, he was taken from the jail to the hospital and he died a couple of days later. Oh, so there was a little, little bit of little bit of justice. I'm sorry. Could you could you start over? I was, the dog was barking. <laughs> I was going to say, well, there's a little bit of justice in in reality in this case. Then I mean, you know, he... yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting how it was nine years to the day that he took ill and then died. So I don't know. Yeah. Go figure. And and so in your blessed book, how did you um, create the character, like the um, the person that was um, uh, doing the investigation? You said it was she was quite different than you. Oh yeah, you know I I'd always wanted to write a book with a reporter in it because that was my my big passion was journalism and reporting, and I also had always wanted to write a very Italian-American character. I am part Italian-American. Um, my character is way Italian-American. <laughs> and and so I started writing, and, and she took on this whole life of her own. She became this woman who lived in San Francisco in the cool part of town that I could never afford to live in. So I, I lived in Oakland, which I love Oakland, but... You know, I could never afford to live in North Beach, San Francisco. It just was not on a reporter's salary. So I made her live there. And I gave her this um, giant family that all lived in the Bay Area. And she would go over and have Sunday dinners at Grandma's, you know, big Sunday dinner every week at Grandma's. And, and you know, and it's funny because in my real life, um, I'm married to an Irish man. And so every Sunday we'd go over to his mom's house for big party with all the big families. So um, so I kind of live it, but in a different way. You know, it's not, you know, she's she's also more outgoing. Um, just, just a different person. I did a, I did a Myers-Briggs personality test, and I, the people kept saying, aren't you Gabriella? And I said, no, I'm not Gabriella. And so I did, I took a Myers-Briggs personality test. I had her answer it, as she would, and then I had my, you know, how I would answer it, and I found out we were polar opposites. Um, it's <laughs> She's, she's, the, she's my alter ego, like the person I might have been in another life. Well, that's sort of fun. Now, how many books have you written with Gabriella Giovanni as the character? So I have uh, four books published. Um, the most recent one was in September. And I'm writing the fifth book in the series um, as we speak. When, and when, how long does it take you to write one of those books? Like how, how, much, how much of your time? Yeah, you know, I, I treat it like a job. I work, um, you know, pretty much every day, uh, Monday through Friday. 
Um, usually about nine, it's a shortened day, probably about nine to three every day I'm working on my book. And it usually takes me uh, three months to get a rough draft and then about another month to polish it and make it look pretty. So uh, where do you have your character going this, this next book? Oh, <laughs> I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I can say, but it's... <laughs> It's in the southern hemisphere, and they speak Spanish, and yeah. So I'll go. How about that? Okay. Well, that's that's a clue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a clue. Um, so your character is is, is a reporter, right? And yes. um, but she travels around, obviously, to uh, different crime scenes. Yep. Wow. And um, yeah. How do you pick normally the, in the Bay Area? How do you pick the the crimes? Like what what? How do you choose? Um, are, they, are they all based on some sort of real, true crime somewhere? No, no. When I first, when when an editor first wanted to buy Bluster of the Dead and they wanted more books, I remember thinking, "Well, I don't know how to write another book. I, I was inspired by a, a, a true life thing. I can't come up with. I just can't make something up out of the air now." And but then I did. So I don't know how that happened. I'm just glad it did. And then. They said, well, we want another book. And I thought, uh-oh, now I have to come up with something else. And, and surprisingly, it was easier than I thought. But I remember being very worried and intimidated. And I, I think, I don't know, I think a lot of writers feel this way. Some, somehow, there's two writers. There's one who has so many ideas, they'll never write all the books in their lifetime. And then there's ones like me who think, I don't think I can ever come up with another book idea to save me. And I always do, so I don't know. <laughs> just, <laughs> just go with it. And uh, so, who are your influences? Oh, I absolutely adore well a couple different writers. I love Lisa Unger. She's more of a psychological thriller, suspense writer than I am, but I just want to be her one day so badly. She's so talented and wonderful. Um, I also really love Laura Lippman, who has a reporter character in her book. Um, not not all of her books, but she has a series of supporters. I love all of her books. Um, I'm really lately um, loving a, a, a newer author in the last couple of years, Alex Marwood, who lives in the United Kingdom. She's fantastic. Um, and one of my other new favorites is Chelsea Kane, and she writes really, really dark serial killer books with a serial killer who's a beautiful woman. Um, and she is not for the faint-hearted. She's got some dark, gory stuff, and I adore her. Um, so those are probably, there's too many to name, but those are my, my, my top four loves, I guess, for writing. Yeah. Do you ever plan on getting dark and gory like that as well? Or I think I'm already dark, <laughs> um, I, but I don't go into gore very much. I, I, I know I'm dark. I had someone, a reviewer, tell me how dark I was the other day. So I, I sort of take it as a compliment, but I'm glad that the cover of my book, one of my, let's see, which book is it? Oh, Bless Her, Those Weeps says, tense, disturbing, and smart. And it, and so someone's not going to pick that up and think it's lighthearted. I, you know, they'll know, I don't want them to be surprised. Like, it says disturbing on the cover, so don't be surprised. It's a little disturbing inside. I don't want to mislead you or give you, maybe it's not the right book for you. Yeah. Um, so now, how do people get a hold of you or um, get a hold of your books? Yeah, uh, well, I'm 
in several different places, but probably the most central point to find all the other places is my website. And that's ChrisKidsBalcomino.com, but that's a mouthful. You can also find it at, it also comes up if you type in blessed are the dead, blessed are the dead.com. Um, ChrisKidsBalcomino.com will come up. And I'm really active on my Facebook author page. I love interacting with people. So I'm probably mostly on there. Fantastic. Well, you know, um, thank you very much for taking time to, to talk to us a little bit about uh, you and, and your writing, and uh, and it's been really interesting, and uh, we wish you the best of luck coming up. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and, and maybe in the future we can get Stephanie on board, too. She has a lot of really interesting things to say. I know she's, she's uh, busy right now, though, but... Oh yeah, for sure. But she she she's you know fifty fifty with me on this book. You know we we did it all together. So. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. This has been a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me. Back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.